Section three of the Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Sunny Days A Song for Summer Is it raining? Never mind. Think how much the birdies love it. See them in their dozens drawn dancing to the croquet lawn. Could our little friends have dined if there'd been no ones above it? Is it murky? What of that, if the owls are fairly perky? Just imagine you were one, wouldn't you, detest the sun? I'm pretending I'm a bat, and I know I like it murky. Is it chilly? After all, we must not forget the poodle. If the days were really hot, could he wear one woolly spot? Could he even keep his shawl? No, he'd shave the whole caboodle. THE SEASON'S PROSPECTS The great question in the Mallory family just now is whether Dick will get into the eleven this year. Confident as he is himself, he's taking no risks. "'We're going to put the new net up tomorrow,' he said to me as soon as I arrived, "'and then you'll be able to bowl to me. How long are you staying?' "'Till tonight,' I said quickly. Raj, you were fixed up here till Tuesday, anyhow. My dear Dick, I've come down for a few days' rest. If the weather permits, I may have the croquet things out one afternoon and try around. Or possibly... I don't believe you can bowl, said Bobby rudely. Bobby is twelve, five years younger than Dick. It is not my place to smack Bobby's head but somebody might do it for him. Then that just shows how little you know about it, I retorted. In a match last September, I went on to bowl. Why? I knew the captain, I explained. Well, as I say, he asked me to go on to bowl, and I took four wickets for thirteen runs. There. Good man, said Dick. "'Was it at a girls' school?' said Bobby. "'You know Bobby is simply asking for it.' "'It was not, nor were children of twelve allowed in without their perambulators.' "'Well, anyhow,' said Bobby, "'I bet Phyllis can bowl better than you.' "'Is this true?' I said to Phyllis. "'I asked her because, in a general way, "'my bowling is held to be superior to that of girls of fifteen. Of course, she might be something special. I can bowl Bobby out, she said modestly. I looked at Bobby in surprise, and then shook my head sadly. You jolly well shut up, he said, turning indignantly to his sister. Just because you did it once, when the sun was in my eyes. Bobby, Bobby, I said, this is painful hearing. Let us be thankful that we don't have to play against girls' schools. Let us... But Bobby was gone. Goaded to anger, he had put his hands in his pockets and made the general observation, rice pudding. An observation inoffensive enough to a stranger, but evidently of such deep private significance to Phyllis, that it was necessary for him to head a pursuit into the shrubbery without further delay. The children are gone, I said to Dick. Now we can discuss the prospects for the season in peace. I took up the sportsman again. 
"'I see that Kent is going to—' "'The prospects are all right,' said Dick. "'If only I can get into form soon enough. "'Last year I didn't get going till the end of June. "'By the way, what sort of stuff do you bowl?' "'Ordinary sort of stuff,' I said, "'with one or two bounces in it. "'Do you see that Surrey fast or slow?' "'Slow, that is, you know, when I do bowl at all.' "'I'm not quite sure this season whether I hadn't better slow,' said Dick thoughtfully. "'It's really what I want. I want lots of that.' "'You must get Phyllis to bowl to you,' I said with detachment. "'You know, I shouldn't be surprised if Lancashire—' "'My dear man, girls can't bowl. She feels jolly well, though. "'What about your father? His bowling days are over.' He was in the eleven, you know, thirty years ago, so there's really nobody but one's bowling days soon get over, I hastened to agree. But I know now exactly what the prospects of the season, or at any rate of the first week of it, are. Mr. Mallory, the prospects here are on the whole encouraging. To dwell upon the right side first, there will be half an hour's casual bowling, and an hour and a half's miscellaneous coaching every day. On the other hand, some of his best plants will be disturbed, while there is more than a chance that he may lose the services of a library window. Mrs. Mallory, the prospects here are much as last year, except that her youngest-born, Joan, is now five, and consequently rather more likely to wander in the way of a cricket-ball, or fall down in front of the roller than she was twelve months ago. Otherwise, Mrs. Mallory faces the approaching season with calm, if not with complete appreciation. Dick. Of Dick's prospects, there is no need to speak at length. He will have two hours batting every day against, from a batsman's point of view, ideal bowling, and, in addition, the whole-hearted admiration of all of us. In short, the outlook here is distinctly hopeful. Phyllis, the prospects of this player are, from her own point of view, bright, as she will be allowed to field, for two hours a day, to the beloved Dick. She is also fully qualified now to help with the heavy roller. A new experiment is to be tried this season, and she will be allowed to bowl for an odd five minutes at the end of Dick's innings to me. Bobby enters upon the coming season with confidence, as he thinks there is a chance of my bowling to him too, but he is mistaken. As before, he will be in charge of the heavy roller, and he will also be required to slacken the ropes of the net at the end of the day. His prospects, however, are certainly improved this season, as he will be qualified to bowl for the whole two hours, but only on the distinct understanding, with Phyllis, that he does his own fielding for himself. On the prospects of Joan, I have already spoken above. There remain only the prospects of myself, which are frankly rotten. They consist chiefly of two hours bowling to the batting of Dick, who hits them back very hard, 
and ten-minute batting to the bowling of Phyllis, slow, mild, and Bobby, fast winds, for Dick, having been ordered by the captain not to strain himself by trying to bowl, is not going to try. It is extremely doubtful whether Bobby will approve of my action, while if he or Phyllis should, by an unlucky accident, get me out, I should never hear the last of it. In this case, however, there must be added to Bobby's prospects the possibility of getting his head definitely smacked. Fortunately, it is my only consolation, the season will be a short one. It ends on Tuesday. The First Game There comes a day, I can hear it coming, one of those glorious deep blue days, when larks are singing and bees are humming, and earth gives voice in a thousand ways. Then I, my friends, I too shall sing, and hum a foolish little thing, and whistle like, but not too like, a blackbird in the spring. There looms a day, I can feel it looming, yes, it will be in a month or less, when all the flowers in the world are blooming, and nature flutters her fairest dress. Then I, my friends, I too shall wear a blazer that will make them stare, and brush, this is official, I shall also brush my hair. It is the day that I watch for yearly, never before has it come so late, but now I've only a month, no, merely a couple of fortnights left to wait. And then, to make the matter plain, I hold at last a bat again. Dear Hobbs, the weeks this summer think the weeks I've lived in vain. I see already the first ball twisting over the green as I take my stand. I hear already long on insisting it wasn't a chance that came to hand. Or, no, I see it miss the bat and strike me on the knees, whereat some fool, some silly fool at point says blandly, how was that? Then, scouting later, I hold a hutton at deep square leg from the local fry, and at short mid-on to the village scotton, I snap a skimmer some six foot high. Or else, perhaps, I get the ball upon the thumb, or not at all, or right into the hands, and then, Lord bless me, let it fall. But what care I? It's the game that calls me simply to be on the field of play. How can it matter what fate befalls me with ten good fellows and one good day? But still, I rather hope spectators will, observing any lack or skill, remark this is his first appearance. Yes, I hope they will. THE COMPETITION SPIRIT About six weeks ago, a Canadian gentleman named Smith arrived in the old country, England. He knew a man who knew a man who knew a man, and so on, and so on for a bit, who knew a man who knew a man who knew me. Letters passed, negotiations ensued, and about a week after he had first set foot in the mother city, London, Smith and I met at my club for lunch. I may confess now that I was nervous. 
I think I expected a man in a brown shirt and leggings who would ask me to put it right there and tell me that I was some Englishman. However, he turned out to be exactly like anybody else in London. Whether he found me exactly like anybody else in Canada, I don't know. Anyway, we had a very pleasant lunch and arranged to play golf together on the next day. Whatever else is true of Canada, there can be no doubt that it turns out delightful golfers. Smith proved to be just the best golfer I had ever met, being, when at the top of his form, almost exactly as good as I was. Hole after hole we halved in a mechanical eight. If, by means of a raking drive and four perfect brassies at the sixth, he managed to get one up for a moment. Then, at the short seventh, a screaming iron and three consummate approaches would make me square again. Occasionally, he would, by superhuman play, do a hole in bogey, but only to crack at the next and leave me at the edge of the green to play one of eleven. It was, in fact, a ding-dong struggle all the way, and for his one-hole victory in the morning, I had my revenge with a one-hole victory in the afternoon. By the end of a month, we must have played a dozen rounds of this nature. I always had a feeling that I was really a better golfer than he, and this made me friendly towards his game. I would concede him short putts, which I should have had no difficulty in missing myself. If he lost his ball, I would beg him to drop another and go on with the hole. If he got into a bad place in a bunker, I would assure him it was ground under repair. He was just as friendly in refusing to take these advantages, just as pleasant in offering similar indulgences to me. I thought at first it was part of his sporting way, but it turned out that, absurdly enough, he also was convinced that he was really the better golfer of the two, and could afford these amenities. One day he announced that he was going back to Canada. We must have a last game, he said, and this one must be decisive. For the championship of the empire, I agreed. Let's buy a little cup and play for it. I've never won anything at golf yet, and I should love to see a little cup on the dinner table every night. You can't come to dinner in Canada every night, he pointed out. It would be so expensive for you. Well, the cup was bought, engraved the Empire Challenge Cup, and played for last Monday. This, said Smith, is a serious game, and we must play all out. No giving away anything, no waving of rules. The empire is at stake. The effeteness of the mother country is about to be put to the proof. Proceed. It wasn't the most pleasant of our games. The spirit of the cup hung over it and depressed us. At the third hole, I had an eighteen-inch putt for a half. That's all right, said Smith forgetfully, and then added, 
"'Perhaps you'd better put it in, though. "'Of course I missed. "'On the fifth green, he was about to brush away a leaf. "'That's illegal,' I said sharply. "'You must pick it up. "'You mayn't brush it away.' "'And after a fierce argument on the point, "'he putted hastily and badly. "'At the eighteenth tee, we were all square "'and hardly on speaking terms.' The fate of the mother country depended upon the result of this hole. I drove a long one, the longest of the day, slightly hooked. Good shot, said Smith with an effort. He pressed and foozled badly. I tried not to look pleased. We found his ball in a thick clump of heather. With a grim look on his face, he took out his niblick. I stayed by him and helped him count up to eight. "'Where's your ball?' he growled. "'A long way on,' I said reproachfully. "'I wish you'd hurry up. The poor thing will be getting cold.' He got to work again. We had another count together up to fifteen. Sometimes there would be a gleam of white at the top of the heather for a moment, and then it would fade away.' "'How many?' I asked some minutes later. "'About thirty, but I don't care. "'I'm going to get the little beast into the hole if it takes me all night.' He went on hacking. I had lost interest in the performance, for the cup was mine. But I did admire his colonial grit. "'Got it!' he cried suddenly, and the ball sailed out onto the pretty. Another shot put him level with me. A thirty-two? I asked. About, he said coldly. I began to look for my ball. It had got tired of waiting and had hidden itself. Smith joined gloomily in the search. This is absurd, I said, after three or four minutes. By Jove, said Smith, suddenly brightening up. If your ball's lost, I win after all. "'Nonsense! You've given the hole up,' I protested. "'You don't know how many you've played. "'According to the rules, if I ask you how many, "'and you give wrong information, "'it's thirty-five, he said promptly. "'I don't believe you count it. "'Call it forty-five, then. "'There's nothing to prevent my calling it more than it really is. "'If it was really only forty, then I'm counting five occasions when the ball rolled over as I was addressing it. That's very generous of me. Actually, I'm doubtful if the ball did roll over five times, but I say it did in order to be on the safe side. He looked at his watch. And if you don't find your ball in thirty seconds, you lose the hole. It was ingenious, but the mother country can be ingenious too. "'How many have you played exactly?' I asked. "'Be careful.' Forty-five, he said. "'Exactly. Right.' I took my niblick and swung at the heather. "'Father,' I said, "'missed it, too. "'Hello. Have you found it?' "'I have. It's somewhere in this field. "'There's no rule which insists that you shall hit the ball, "'or even that you shall hit near the ball.' or even that you shall see the ball when you hit at it. Lots of old gentlemen shut their eyes and miss the sphere. 
I've missed. In five minutes, I shall miss again. But what's the point? The point, dear friend, I smiled, is that after each stroke, one is allowed five minutes in which to find the ball. I have forty-three strokes in hand that gives me three hours and thirty-five minutes in which to look for it. At regular intervals of five minutes I shall swing my club and probably miss. It's four-thirty now. At eight o'clock, unless I find my ball before, I shall be playing the like. And if you are a sportsman, I added, you will bring me out some tea in half an hour. At six-thirty I was still looking and swinging. Smith then came to terms and agreed to share the cup with me for the first year. He goes back to Canada tomorrow, and will spread the good news there that the old country can still hold its own in resource determination and staying power. But next year we are going to play friendly golf again. The First Tea Mullion it is the place it is the place my soul blow bugle blow sing triangle toot fight down to the sea the close-cropped pastures roll couches behind yon sandy hill the goal whereat it may be after ceaseless strife the colonel shall find peace and henry say you're whole caddy give me the driver caddy the sun shines hot, but there's half a breeze, enough to rustle the tree-tops, laddie, only supposing there were some trees. The year's at the full, and the morn's at eleven. It's a wonderful day just straight from heaven, and this is a hole I can do in seven. Caddy, my driver, please. Three times a day from now till Monday week, ten peerless days in all i take my stand vested in some degage mode of breek the chessboard touch with squares that almost speak and lightly sketch my slice into the sand as based on bigger men but much of it unique caddy give me my driver caddy note my style on the first few tees duncan fashioned my wrist-work laddie Taylor taught me to twist my knees. I've a beautiful swing that I learned from Varden. I practiced it sometimes down the garden. My fault. Sorry. I beg your pardon. Caddy, my driver, please. Only ten little days in which to do so much. E.g. the twelfth. Ah, it was there. The secretary met his Waterloo, but perished gamely, playing twenty-two. His clubs, ten little days, lie bleaching where, sea poppies blow, ten days, and wheeling seabirds mew. Caddy, give me my driver, Caddy. Let us away with thoughts like these. A week and a half is a lifetime, laddie. The day that's here is the day to seize. Carpe diem, yes, that's the motto. Work be jiggered and likewise what ho. I'm not going back till I've jolly well got to. Caddy, my driver, please. The Enchanted Castle There are warm days in London when even a window box fails to charm. 
and one longs for the more open spaces of the country. Besides, one wants to see how the other flowers are getting on. It is on these days that we travel to our castle of Stokes, as the crow flies fifteen miles away. Indeed, that is the way we get to it, for it is a castle in the air. And when we come to it, Celia is always in a pink sunbonnet, gathering roses lovingly, and I, not very far off, am speaking strongly to somebody or other about something I want done. By and by, I shall go into the library and work, with an occasional glance through the open window at Celia. Do you think that a month ago we were quite happy with a few pink geraniums? Sunday a month ago was hot. Let's take a train somewhere, said Celia, and have lunch under a hedge. I know a lovely place for hedges, I said. I know a lovely tin of potted grouse, said Celia. And she went off to cut some sandwiches. By twelve o'clock we were getting out of the train. The first thing we came to was a golf course, and Celia had to drag me past it. Then we came into a wood, and I had to drag her through it. Another mile along, a lane, and then we both stopped together. Oh, we said. It was a cottage. The cottage of a dream. And by a cottage I mean not four plain rooms and a kitchen, but one surprising room opening into another, rooms all on different levels and of different shapes, with delightful places to bump your head on, open fireplaces, a large square hall, oak beamed, where your guests can hang about after breakfast while deciding whether to play golf or sit in the garden, yet all so cunningly disposed that from outside it looks only a cottage, or at most two cottages persuaded into one. And of course we only saw it from the outside. The little drive, determined to get there as soon as possible, pushed its way straight through an old barn, and arrived at the door simultaneously with the flagged lavender walk for the humble who came by foot. The rhododendrons were ablaze beneath the south windows. A little orchard was running wild on the west. There was a hint at the back of a clean-cut lawn. Also, you remember, there was a golf course less than two miles away. Oh, said Celia with a deep sigh, but we must live here. An Irish terrier ran out to inspect us. I bent down and patted it. With a dog, I added. Isn't it all lovely? I wonder who it belongs to, and if, if he'd like to give it to us. Perhaps he would, if he saw us and admired us very much, said Celia, hopefully. I don't think Mr. Barlow is that sort of man, I said. An excellent fellow, but not one to take these sudden fancies. "'Mr. Barlow, how do you know his name?' "'I have these surprising intuitions,' I said modestly. "'The way the chimneys stand up.' "'I know,' cried Celia, "'the dog's collar. "'Right, Watson, and the name of the house is Stopes.' 
she repeated it to herself with a frown. "'What a disappointing name,' she said. "'Just Stopes.' "'Stopes,' I said. "'Stopes, Stopes. "'If you keep on saying it, a certain old-world charm seems to gather round it. "'Stopes.' "'Stopes,' said Celia. "'It is rather jolly.' "'We said it ten times each again, and it seemed the only possible name for it. "'Stopes, of course.' "'Well,' I asked, "'We must write to Mr. Barlow,' said Celia decisively. "'Dear Mr. Barlow, er, dear Mr. Barlow, we... "'Yes, it will be rather difficult. "'What do we want to say exactly?' "'Dear Mr. Barlow, may we have your house?' "'Yes,' smiled Celia, "'but I'm afraid we can hardly ask for it.' "'But we might rent it when... when he doesn't want it any more. "'Dear Mr. Barlow,' I amended, "'have you any idea when you're going to die?' "'No, that wouldn't do either. "'And there's another thing. "'We don't know even his initials, "'or if he is a mister, perhaps he's a knight, or a, a duke. "'Think how offended Duke Barlow would be if we put... Barlow Esquire on the envelope. We could telegraph. Barlow, after you with Stopes. Perhaps there's a young Barlow, a Barlowette, or two, with expectations. It may have been in the family for years. Then we... Oh, let's have lunch. She sat down and began to undo the sandwiches. Dear old Stopes, she said with her mouth full, we lunched outside Stopes. Surely, if Earl Barlow had seen us, he would have asked us in. But no doubt his dining-room looked the other way, towards the east and north, as I pointed out to Celia, thus being pleasantly cool at lunchtime. Ha! Barlow, I said dramatically, a time will come when we shall be lunching in there, and you, bah! and I tossed a potted grouse sandwich to his dog. However, that didn't get us any nearer. "'Will you promise,' said Celia, "'that we shall have lunch in there one day?' "'I promise,' I said readily. "'That gave me about sixty years to do something in. "'I'm like who was it who saw something of another man's "'and wouldn't be happy till he got it?' the baby in the soap advertisement no no some king in history i believe you are thinking of ahab but you aren't a bit like him really besides we're not coveting stopes all we want to know is does barlow ever let it in the summer that's it said celia eagerly and if so i went on will he lend us the money to pay the rent with er yes said celia that's it. So for a month we had lived in our castle of Stopes. I see Celia there in her pink sunbonnet, gathering the flowers lovingly, bringing an armful of them into the hall, disturbing me sometimes in the library with, aren't they beauties? No, I only just looked in. Good luck to you. And she sees me ordering a man about, importantly, or waving my hand to her as I ride through the old barn on my road to the golf course. 
but this morning she had an idea. Suppose, she said timidly, you wrote about Stopes, and Mr. Barlow happened to see it, and knew how much we wanted it, and, well, then, said Celia firmly, if he were a gentleman, he would give it to us. Very well. Now we shall see if Mr. Barlow is a gentleman. THE SANDS OF PLEASURE Ladies first, so we will start with Jenny. Jenny is only nine, but she has been to the seaside before, and knows all about it. She wears the fashionable costume de plage, which consists of a white linen hat, a jersey, and an overcrowded pair of bathing drawers, into which not only Jenny, but the rest of her wardrobe has had to fit itself. Slim brown legs emerge to bear the burden, and one feels that if she fell over she would have to stay there until somebody picked her up. She is holding Richard Henry by the hand. Richard Henry is four, and this is the first time he has been to the sea. Jenny is showing it to him. Privately, he thinks that it has been overrated. There was a good deal of talk about it in his suburb, particularly from Jenny, and naturally one expected something rather, well, rather more like what they had been saying it was like. However, perhaps it would be as well to keep in with Jenny and not to let her see that he is disappointed, so every time she asks, Isn't the sea lovely? he echoes, Lovely. And now and then he adds, just to humor her, is that the sea? And then she has a chance to say again, Yes, that's the sea, darling. Isn't it lovely? It is obvious that she is proud of it. Apparently, she put it there. Anyway, it's hers now. Jenny has brought father and mother, as well as Richard Henry. There they are, over there. When she came before, she had to leave them behind, much to their disappointment father was saying, Form fours left, before going off to France again, and mother was buying wool to make him some more socks. It was a great relief to them to know that they were being taken this time, and that they would have Jenny to tell them all about it. Father is lying in a deck chair, smoking his pipe. There has been an interesting discussion this afternoon as to whether he is a coward or not. Father thought he wasn't, but Mother wasn't quite so sure. Jenny said that of course he couldn't really be, because the king gave him a medal for not being one. But Mother explained that it was only a medal he had over, and Father happened to be passing by the window. I don't see what this has to do with it, said father. I simply prefer bathing in the morning. Ooh, you said this morning you preferred bathing in the afternoon, says Jenny, like a flash. I know, but since then I've had time to think it over, and I see that I was hasty. The morning is the best time. I'm afraid he is a coward, said Mother, sadly, wondering why she had married him. The whole point is, why did Jenny bring me here? 
to enjoy yourself said jenny promptly well i am said father closing his eyes but we do not feel so sure that mother is enjoying herself she has just read in the paper about a mine that floated ashore and exploded nobody was near at the time but supposing one of the children had been playing with it which one said father lazily jenny then we should have lost jenny this being so jenny promises solemnly not to play with any mine that comes ashore nor to let richard henry play with it nor to allow it to play with richard henry nor i suppose i may just point it out to him and say look that's a mine says jenny wistfully if she can't do this it doesn't seem to be much use coming to the seaside at all i don't think there would be any harm in that says father but don't engage it in conversation thank you very much says jenny and she and richard henry go off together mother watches them anxiously father closes his eyes now says jenny eagerly i'm going to show you a darling little crab won't that be lovely richard henry having been deceived as he feels about the sea is not too hopeful about that crab however he asks politely what's a crab you'll see directly darling says jenny and he has to be content with that crab he murmurs to himself suddenly an idea occurs to him he lets go of jenny's hand and trots up to an old gentleman with white whiskers going to see a crab he announces going to see a crab are you my little man says the old gentleman kindly going to see a crab says richard henry determined to keep up his end of the conversation well i never so you're going to see a crab says the old gentleman doing his best with it richard henry nods two or three times going to see a crab he says firmly luckily jenny comes up and rescues him otherwise they would still be at it come along darling and see the crab she says picking up his hand and richard henry looks triumphantly at the old gentleman there you are perhaps he will believe a fellow another time jenny has evidently made an arrangement with a particular crab for this afternoon it is to be hoped that the appointment will be kept for she has hurried richard henry past all sorts of wonderful things which he wanted to stop with for a little but the thought of this lovely crab which jenny thinks so much of forbids protest quite right not to keep it waiting what will it be like will it be bigger than the sea we have reached the rendezvous we see now that we need not have been in such a hurry there says jenny excitedly isn't he a darling little crab he's asleep that's why we need not have hurried richard henry says nothing he can't think of the words what he wants to say is that jenny has let him down again they passed a lot of these funny little things on their way here but jenny wouldn't stop because she was going to show him a crab 
a great big enormous darling little crab which might have been anything and now it's only just this no wonder the old gentleman didn't believe him swindled that's the word he wants however he can't think of it for the moment so he tries something else darling little crab he says they leave the dead crab there and hurry back what shall i show you now says jenny golden memories when memory with its scorn of ages its predilection for the past turns back about a billion pages and lands us by the cam at last is it the thought of granta once our daughter the freshers match the second in our maze that makes our mouth our very soul to water ah no ah no it is the salmon mayonnaise the work we did was rarely reckoned worthy a tutor's kindly word for when i said we got a second i really meant we got a third the games we played were often tinged with bitter amidst the dams no faintest hint of praise greeted us when we missed the authentic sitter but thou wert always kind o oh, salmon mayonnaise even our nights with granta even the style that week by blessed week mixed calverly and j k stephen with much that was i hold unique even our parodies of the rubaiyat were disappointing yes in certain ways what genius loves i mean the people shy at yet no one ever shied at salmon mayonnaise alas no restaurant in london can make us feel that thrill again though what they do or what leave undone i often ask and ask in vain is it the sauce which puts the brand of cam on each maddening dish the egg the yellow glaze the cucumber the special breed of salmon i only know we loved we loved that mayonnaise did beauty some may ask severely visit him in no other guise it cannot be that salmon merely should bring the mist before his eyes what of the river there where byron's pool lay the warm blue morning shimmering in the haze not this i say yet something else creme brulee ye gods to think of that and salmon mayonnaise the problem of life the noise of the retreating sea came pleasantly to us from a distance celia was lying on her i never know how to put this nicely well she was lying face downwards on a rock and gazing into a little pool which the tide had forgotten about and left behind i sat beside her and annoyed a limpet three minutes ago i had taken it suddenly by surprise and with a Herculean effort moved it an eighteenth of a millimeter westwards. My silence, since then, was lulling it into a false security, and in another two minutes I hoped to get a move on it again. Do you know, 
said Celia, with a puzzled look on her face. "'Sometimes I think I'm quite an ordinary person after all.' "'You aren't a little bit,' I said lazily. "'You're just like nobody else in the world.' "'Well, of course you had to say that.' "'No, I hadn't. Lots of husbands would merely have yawned.' "'I felt one coming, and stopped it just in time. "'Waiting for limpets to go to sleep is drowsy work. "'But why are you so morbid about yourself, suddenly?' "'I don't know,' she said. "'Only every now and then I find myself thinking the most obvious thoughts.' "'We all do,' I answered, as I stroked my limpet gently.' The noise of our conversation had roused it, but a gentle stroking motion, I am told by those to whom it has been confided, will frequently cause its muscles to relax. The great thing is not to speak to them. Still, you'd better tell me now, what is it? Well, she said, her cheeks perhaps a little pinker than usual, I was just thinking that life was very wonderful. "'But it's a silly thing to say.' "'It's holiday time,' I reminded her. "'The need for sprinkling our remarks with thoughtful words like economic and sporadic is over for a bit. Let us be silly.' I scratched in the rock the goal to which I was urging my limpet and took out my watch. Three thirty-five. I shall get him there by four. Celia was gazing at two baby fishes who played in and out a bunch of seaweed. Above the seaweed, an anemone sat fatly. "'I suppose they're all just as much alive as we are,' she said thoughtfully. "'They marry,' I looked at my limpet with new interest, "'and bring up families and go about their business, "'and it all means just as much to them as it does to us.' "'My limbit's business affairs mean nothing to me,' I said firmly. "'I am only wrapped up in him as a sprinter.' "'Aren't you going to try to move him again?' "'He's not quite ready yet. He still has his suspicions.' Celia dropped into silence. Her next question showed that she had left the pool for a moment. "'Are there any people in Mars?' she asked. People down here say there aren't. A man told me the other day that he knew this for a fact. On the other hand, people in Mars know for a fact that there isn't anybody on Earth. Probably they are both wrong. I should like to know a lot about things, sighed Celia. Do you know anything about limpets? Only that they stick like bilio. I suppose more about them is known than that. I suppose so, by people who have made a specialty of them. For one who has preferred to amass general knowledge rather than to specialize, it is considered enough to know that they stick like bilio. You haven't specialized in anything, have you? Only in wives. Celia smiled and went on. How do you make a specialty of limpets? Well, I suppose you, er, study them. You sit down and, and watch them. Probably after dark they get up and do something. 
And, of course, in any case, you can always dissect one and see what he's had for breakfast. One way and another, you get to know things about them. They must have a lot of time for thinking, said Celia, regarding my limpet with her head on one side. Tell me, how do they know that there are no men in Mars? I sat up with a sigh. Celia, you do dodge about so. I have barely brought together and classified my array of facts when you've dashed up to another one. What is the connection between Mars and limpets? If there are any limpets in Mars, they are fresh water ones in the canals. Oh, I just wondered, she said. I mean, she wrinkled her forehead in the effort to find words for her thoughts. I'm wondering what everything means, and why we're all here, and what limpets are for, and, supposing there are people in Mars, if we're the real people whom the world was made for, or if they are. She stopped, and added, One evening after dinner, when we get home, you must tell me all about everything. Celia has a beautiful idea that I can explain everything to her. I suppose I must have explained a stymie or a no-ball very cleverly once. Well, I said, I can tell you what limpets are for now. They're like sheep and cows and horses and pheasants and, and any other animal. They're just for us. At least so the wise people say. But we don't eat limpets. No, but they can amuse us. This one, and with a sudden leap I was behind him as he dozed, and I had dashed him forward another eighteenth of a millimeter, this one has amused me. Perhaps, said Celia thoughtfully, and I don't think it was quite a nice thing for a young woman to say, perhaps we're only meant to amuse the people in Mars. Then, I said lazily, Let's hope that they are amused. Ten days later, the great war began. Celia said no more on the subject, but she used to look at me curiously sometimes, and I fear that the problem of life left her more puzzled than ever. At the risk of betraying myself to her as quite an ordinary person after all, I confess that there are times when it leaves me puzzled, too. End of section 3